His proverbs were so witty, so original. They pierced one playfully, sometimes even painfully, but I couldn't get enough. They spoke not simply because he said them, but because they continued talking long after I left his presence. It's as if wisdom was an intimate friend of his, and he graced me with her presence as I listened. Her influence lingered like a sweet perfume. Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, the podcast between Sundays. Man, do I have a treat for you. As you heard an excerpt of what's to come, we have a very fun episode of all things related to the kings of Israel. That's why we're calling this episode the Royal Mashup, because rather than just relating to the message that I just taught, we're going to go backward a little bit and stay with some material in the message just taught. So, everything from before Solomon to during Solomon to after Solomon. This episode will have five parts. In the first part, we'll hear some fictitious yet factual excerpts from citizens around Jerusalem and around the world about the splendor of Solomon. This part will feature excerpts from a work that I've been writing called The Song of the Kingdom, and I've been reading through it with my students at Lake Road Christian School, and the voices that you will hear in this part will be in part me and in part their voices. In part two, there will be a discussion with my friend Dane Bundy called The Making of a Monster. This is based on David and Bathsheba. In part three, we will look at the movie Cars 3 and how it relates to Elijah, Elisha, and us. Then in part four, we will look at the split of the kingdom of Israel, and we will keep score on which kingdom was the worst. And in part five, we will take a deeper dive into the literary structure of the Book of Kings. If you have any topics or questions that you would love to submit for the podcast material, please email me at brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com. That's brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com, and you can see the notes to this episode for the proper spelling. And without any further delay, part one, the splendor of Solomon. I came to him hearing outlandish rumors about his splendor. I didn't believe them, so I had to see for myself. I presented him with every unanswered question I have ever pondered, and he answered them all. When I had seen the fullness of his wisdom, the riches of his palace, the food punishing his table, the dignity of his rulers, the generosity of his servants, their lavish attire, and the weekly festival at his king's palace, I had no more breath. 
No rumor, legend, or tall tale could ever exaggerate the splendor of his prince. Blessed be Yahweh, Prince Solomon's king, for gracing him with such favor. The Princess of Sheba Those were the good times. We paved a walkway to our house with silver. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not rich. Oh, I see where you misunderstood me. Well, back then, silver cost the same as stone. Habiah, a citizen of Jerusalem. Every cup, every bowl, every plate, even the spoons of his table were made of pure gold. I couldn't find a single piece of silver anywhere. It seemed to me that silver was beneath him. I began to grow overly self-conscious of my comparatively cheap jewelry. Ansha, princess of Ethiopia. Between the palace of Yahweh, the house of the trees of Lebanon, the hall of pillars, the hall of the throne, the palace of Solomon, there was no end to the beauty one could enhance his eye with. Then there were his banquets to taste, his concerts to experience, his museum of exotic treasures to visit, the stables of his pure stallions and mustangs. This is only the beginning of the many attractions that drew an unending stream of princes and princesses to Jerusalem from all over the world. There wasn't a single noble or dignitary who didn't visit the Golden City at least once. And each time they did, they brought to Prince Solomon from the stores of their very best. They considered it an honor to see their kingdom's treasures sharing space with Solomon, King of Jerusalem. Jehoshaphat, recorder and chronicler of the life of Prince Solomon. Oh, the many halls, but the house of the forest of Lebanon was my favorite. The ceiling raised to heaven, three tiers of windows becoming fresh light and swirling breeze. The walls were formed by columns of solid cedar, the size of those trees to produce such columns, and the beams that stretched across equally impressive. Along the perimeter of the house, Verdant plants and ferns suspended over flowers dripping with color. In the midst of the house rose cedars, real, living cedars. Birds sang from their branches, squirrels jumped from their limbs. I saw a peacock strutting around the foliage. I was told there was even a deer in there, although I didn't see it. The Princess of Sheba even 4,000 stalls could hardly contain his bursting collection of hybrid horses from all over the world. Even the famous horses of Egypt. He employed 12,000 horsemen just to take care of them. He had so many horses, he needed entire cities set aside for their care and to house their horsemen. Jehoshaphat, recorder and chronicler of the life of Prince Solomon. Gorgeous animals from Egypt, Arabia, and all over. I had grown up with horses all my life, but had never seen ones like Solomon's. The mere touch of one of these mystical creatures imbued one with unearthly power. Well, at least it felt that way. I did whatever it took to work as one of his horsemen. So no, it was not a difficult choice to move my family into one of the stable cities. Ola, one of Prince Solomon's horsemen. Prince Solomon reigned as the Prince of Princes. He doubled the kingdom of Prince David, ruling over all the princes, as far south as Egypt to as far north as eastern Turkey. In addition to stable cities for horses, he fortified defense cities along our borders. 
thanks to the might of these cities, we enjoyed a time of peace and prosperity, wealth, not war entered our borders. Those were the days I could just come home from work early. I, I could brew tea, grab a scroll of old Prince David's poems, and read underneath my old olive tree. That was the good life. Berith, a citizen of Jerusalem. It seemed there was a ball or some sort of celebration to be found somewhere in the city every night of the week. Rachel, a citizen of Jerusalem. In order to feed his house, Solomon required around 80,000 pounds of food a day, 1,500 gallons of flour, 3,000 gallons of grains, 10 oxen, 20 cattle, 100 sheep, a variety of deer, gazelles, roebucks, and the best of fowl. When I entered the hall of the throne, overwhelmed me. He carved his throne from ivory and overlaid it with gold. The figure of two lions formed of solid gold at the end of each armrest. On each end of the six steps sat twelve more lions, live lions. Not a single throne in all the world rivaled Prince Solomon's. Pharaoh, Prince of Egypt. My wife asked what she should wear. <laughs> I laughed. We don't own anything worthy of a banquet in Prince Solomon's palace. No princess could outshine the beauty of that palace. Yeah, yeah, my jaw did hurt a bit after that. She has a pretty good punch. Osni, a guest at Solomon's Feast of Weeks. He was powerful and wealthy, yes, but he was also artistic and wise. He wrote a thousand and five songs and coined three thousand proverbs. He could speak ex... ex... extemp... Uh, are you trying to say extemporaneously? Yes, extemporaneously. Uh, ab about anything in nature. From cedars to moss, from elephants to ants, from clouds to soil. It put me to shame. But he would not only explain what we can learn about these many species, but what we can learn from them. He seemed to believe in a great king who somehow rules over, even sustains this world. Shalit, the sage of the prince of Syria... His proverbs were so witty, so original. They pierced one playfully, sometimes even painfully. But I couldn't get enough. They spoke, not simply because he said them, but because they continued talking long after I left his presence. It's as if wisdom was an intimate friend of his, and he graced me with her presence as I listened. Her influence lingered like a sweet perfume. Grieger, trade minister of the Prince of Ethiopia. You meet a magic genie. He grants you one wish. What do you wish for? Can you believe it? He wished for me. Lady Wisdom. king of Egypt. But when I saw the palace Prince Solomon built for Yahweh, king of heaven, my heart envied this people. Which shall I describe? The ascetic angels and skillful curl of the architecture? The impossible wealth embedded in every inch of decor? 
the sheer size of the courts and the palace, or the enchanting music that soothed the soul. Something awoke within me while there. I have no idea what it was, but I felt different, more ancient, yet younger. As if the wisdom of age finally copied with the strength of youth, my feet wanted to dance. I wanted to sprout wings and soar on the celebratory notes of the music. It felt I could leap over a wall or outrun horses, even Prince Solomon's horses. Who is this king of splendor? How I envy what Jerusalem has. Tuli, musician of Ra, king of Egypt. Even before we made the long ascent up the winding hills to the city, I could see its gold beaming from the mountaintop. It seemed to say, come further up and further in. I promise it will be worth it. Baalis, choreographer of Baal, king of Canaan. While we climbed, the exuberant singing of the hikers around us lifted my mind from the pain in my feet. I looked to the hills, then beyond, to the majestic palace, seen even from here, glinting like a light of renewal to a world tripping over its own ruins. If these were the songs of our climb, what would they be like in the palace itself? Hi, singer of Asherah, queen of Canaan. And so much... Gold! Bezai, treasurer of Dagon, king of Philistia. I swear, if I closed my eyes and listened, I was actually watching the creation of an ancient kingdom. What a disappointment when I opened my eyes and learned that I was not there. But what redemption to look around and realize that I was hearing music surpassed, if possible, by the splendor of the palace itself. I was in heaven, but somehow still on earth. Beoloth, songwriter of Molech, king of Amnon. The way they moved, such grace, such joy. I had to watch intently to be sure their feet did touch the ground. Eglah, Dancer of Chemosh, king of Moab. I didn't know anyone, yet I belonged. I felt it in my bones, like I had finally returned to a home I never knew I left. This has become my standard for defining a good feast, and sadly, I haven't found one since. I yearn to go back. Jayakin, master of ceremonies of Tammuz, Queen of Babylon. He had a lot of wives. How couldn't he? Our marriage began happily enough. It was arranged by my father. But what a man! His wealth, his humor, his knowledge, he was so interesting. We would spend hours in his gardens, eating and laughing. I learned to love him. But then the others came. That's when I became known as the first. Anun, daughter of Pharaoh, prince of Egypt. Oh, yes, I knew she would be his 557th wife. 
Wait, she was the 558th, you say? He married another right before her? Ha <laughs> ha, what a stud! Well, as I was saying, yes, I knew she would be one of the hundreds, but we are talking about Solomon, Prince of Jerusalem here. What prince wouldn't want to have his daughter living with him? Dinaba, Prince of Moab. Would I want that many wives? <laughs> if that many wanted me? Absolutely. Adoniram, head forester of cedars for the Prince Solomon. He would have to visit something, like two or a half every night, just to see women once a year. Wait, two and a half every night? Wow. Benaiah, commander of the armies of Prince Solomon. 700 wives, 300 mistresses? That's disgusting. Sarah, wife of Jehoshaphat, recorder of Prince Solomon. Is there any difference between a wife and a mistress? Not when they number in the thousands. Ahijah, secretary of Prince Solomon. One thousand? Has someone actually counted them? How does one even keep track? Does Solomon line them up in alphabetical order? Do they wear name tags? Azariah, supervisor of the officers of Prince Solomon. The loneliness, the degradation, the competition amongst them. Can you even imagine? Karina, wife of Zadok, the priest and friend of Prince Solomon. Part 2. The Making of a Monster a conversation with Dane Bundy on David and Bathsheba. Today's passage is from 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 11. And so what Pastor Brandon and I are going to do is we're just going to kind of have a dialogue about this passage, this story, and some applications that we can make for our own lives. And I'm, we're going to try and draw in from culture, so bring in some movies. And um, I just discovered movies last year. It's been this great binge. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I love movies. So I'll be bringing in some movies and all that. So Pastor Brandon... Let's first, let's talk about uh, this passage of David and Bathsheba. And what's interesting is you guys all are probably familiar with this passage. And if you look at the first couple of verses of this story, they get pretty sinister pretty quickly, don't they? There's a lot of drama in this chapter. And so, yeah. so let's, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. Actually, just verse 1 and verse 2, and we already got the drama going. So check this out. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So that's clue number one of, uh-oh. Yeah, David's not doing what he should be doing as So the commander of the army. Right. So in my understanding, he should be out with the troops. He always is. He's the giant slayer. Okay. Now he's the giant napper. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and, and I like that you brought up the word nap because look at verse 2. <laughs> I just love that word. Uh, verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. <laughs> right? Netflix and ice cream. Yeah. So he's letting go, people. He's letting go. So all of David's troops are out on the battlefield and David is hanging out on his couch. But don't worry, he does get up from his couch. So it says, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, then he saw from the roof a woman. Yeah, always trouble. And she was bathing. Now... We can bring into this point here that usually in stories, at least in ancient stories, the woman represents evil who's coming in, the sinister one to kind of spoil the plot. But I think in the Bible here, we see a different picture in that the evil is not necessarily in Bathsheba. It lurks within our hero, right? Yeah. And if I could draw your attention to something real quick... In verse 1, it said, speaking of, of Israel and the warriors, and they ravaged the Ammonites. Mm-hmm. So what's going on here? This is what's going on. They had just finished with this great victory. They had just conquered some of their enemies. And now David is taking a breath. He's staying home while then the troops go out. So... What happens sometimes after a victory? Well, I think what we see right here is an example of that. Um, I'd like to kind of title this section that we're looking at um, Monsters Made by a Million Compromises. So David becomes this monster. You guys know the story, right? He ends up taking a wife... And sleeping with her and then killing her husband. When I look up in the dictionary monster, that's exactly what I see, right? But I want you to notice that we don't read in the text, David says, oh, I think that I want to become an adulterating murderer today. And so when I look at this text, I ask my, myself, how does he become this monster? What steps did he take? Did it take place overnight or, or what? Right, right. So are you guys familiar with that, uh, with that, that uh, ancient story of the Trojan horse? Yes. Yeah, that's a, it's a great story. So it's at the end of the Trojan War, and the Greeks send the Trojans in Troy this beautiful horse. And the Trojans think it's this great gift, <laughs> and it's not. And what's inside, right, what's inside this Trojan horse are troops. And so the, the Trojans bring the horse into their, their town, and when nightfall comes... The belly, I'm elaborating a little bit, but the belly of the horse opens up and the troops creep out and they just totally bring down the Trojans and it's the end of the war. And so, and so what we're seeing there is a seemingly innocent token, a statue horse they gave as a gift. Let's, let's take it. It seemed innocent enough, but that innocent act led to devastation and destruction. 
they were ravished. Yeah, exactly. And so in, in some respect, the, the Trojan horse for David is victory and now the opportunity to relax. Kick it back a bit, yeah. Send the troops out, but as the kings stay home, kind of abandon his responsibility. And little did he know that, uh-oh, here come the troops from the horse. And so what, what we end up reading is that he, it looks like he's bored, right? So he just woke up from a nap. Now he's walking on his roof. Because that's what everyone does when they're bored. Right. I just go walk on the roof. <laughs> and lo and behold, there he sees this woman. And it's not his wife. It's actually one of his own um, one of his own generals or one of his troops. Yeah, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was one of his generals. And actually, David had 30 of his mighty men of valor. These were like his Navy SEALs. They would go and do the dirty work. Uriah was one of his top 30 soldiers. So, and this is his wife, Uriah's wife. So, okay, we may be reading this. We're like, okay, big deal. He's sleeping on the couch. We all sleep on the couch. Okay, he's walking on the roof. Big deal. I like to take walks too. Okay, he sees he sees a woman. I see women too, right? Um, like I see dead people. I see women, right? But, but see, what then happens is we can fill in the gaps in the story is that now it's not just looking at the woman, Right, The Trojan horse, the bottom of the horse is opening, and now lust has entered into his heart. Because then we see this small sin grow. And it's not, it's not him one day waking up or in a moment saying, I want to commit adultery and then kill her husband. It doesn't happen that way. Monsters aren't made that way. They may, they're made... By a Slowly. million compromises. By a million compromises. So, so you're making a distinction between compromises and sin. Could you clarify for us, like, what, where in this story do we see compromise and where do we see sin and what's the difference? Yes, well, I think that the, the, the first compromise probably is him staying home when he should be in battle. But that wasn't a sin. What? Yes, no. Uh, is it a area? sin? I would probably say an unwise, maybe a gray area, an, un- an unwise decision. So is that a compromise, just an unwise? I think so. Or maybe we could say at the very least it's, it's an unwise decision that's just putting you into the path of, of sin. Okay. Does so Does that make sense? So he's giving up. And by the way, the couch, it's like if you guys sit on the couch... Like my class? Yeah! Wow, that was way weaker than you got, but whatever. Does that, that doesn't mean we're in compromise. It's not the couch. Mm-mm. It's what David replaced the couch, or what he replaced, what the couch replaced. Yeah. Uh, his purpose, yeah. being with the troops. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then the, all these little compromises, which then become sin. So we, he starts lusting in his heart. Then he calls for Bathsheba and she comes, right? Women at that time didn't say no to kings, right? So she comes and they commit adultery. And I can just imagine him now thinking to himself, 
to himself, okay, now I've got a problem. And so what ends up happening in the story, well, you guys know, he ends up trying to figure out how to cover what he's done. And he ends up navigating, strategically navigating, so that her husband is put at the front lines in the battle so that he is killed. But it doesn't take that brilliant of a person to realize this is murder. It's like a mob boss. Like, I didn't kill him. Yeah, you had someone do it. You had like a hitman do it. But it's it's just this whole thing where one sin leads to another. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't wake up saying, I'm going to murder Uriah. He loved Uriah. Right. But one sin made him feel compelled to do another. And we see now a king who's supposed to be in charge of his people and the kingdom is now in. He's being ruled by his own decisions. He's becoming a victim of his prior if you can call it victim, he did it. <laughs> I had adultery, now I have to murder. And here's the slavery of sin, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so he, he's enslaved, and now he is spinning his wheels, trying to figure out. He, he's basically running from the only thing that will get him out of the trouble, repentance. And so it leads me to this idea that when we think about sins, right, we think about sin, there's really no such thing as Small sin. All sin is great, whether it's in the heart or whether it's done outside of the heart. But what these small sins are really composed of is all of these little compromises, all of these little unwise decisions that are like a snowball going down a hill and they just get more snow and they get bigger and they get bigger and they get bigger. And at the end, it's like this huge mound of of snow and when the little snowball began he thought i will never be this large snowball and if i could read a passage real quick um, from a commentary it, listen to this this kind of reflects on the idea of what happens when we get too satisfied in things going well So by now, the Israelite army was powerful and David's position was very secure. And it is all too often the case that a sense of ease and security is the prelude to spiritual and moral failure. So David had just come off this great victory. He was feeling good. He probably felt God's pleasure. He was leading God's people. And he says, I probably, I deserve a break right now. I'm going to go and hang out on my couch and take a walk. And that, that sense of entitlement, I deserve this, is, that can be very dangerous. It can be very scary. It's, it's, it's where the sinister things come. So how, how can we guard against uh, these kinds of compromises and this kind of kicking back and saying, I deserve this? How do we protect the snowball from getting too big? Everything you've been saying, what are some steps we can do to prevent this from getting out of hand? I think that's a great question. I think that's really practical for us right here. Some of you may be thinking, I would never do that, or I would never do this. That's kind of a dangerous thing to say. And, and what I would say, the best thing that we can do is just really make it a daily practice of just begging the Lord to keep us in the right path. I mean, this is a daily asking the Spirit to give us wisdom as we're reading through Scripture. 
And sometimes we may come back from camp and we may feel like this is great victory. And we feel like, ah, I don't need to. I'm just going to roll off of the great success, the great reformation that took in my heart. And I don't need to be in the scriptures anymore in praying. That's a very dangerous place to be. Because I've been there before, and we have a great example and I of think this that's principle. It's really important to see that we need to recognize that we we need to ask God for His grace, His help all the time. It's something that Charles Spurgeon used to say. I think it was him that we, if we knew our nature, we'd see that we are pigs drawn to the mud, mm-hmm. and that it's a it's a constant asking God, "Let me be my." true self in you not the pig in the mud because that's where that's our proclivity right it's our habit to go there yeah yeah and and so recognizing that we are pigs drawn to the mud and not to the bath right (laughs) yeah exactly or like my kids kicking and screaming when you try to give them a bath yes exactly yeah no kid really wakes up and says i want to be clean I mean, maybe not. Well, Avelyn does, but okay. loves the dirt. <laughs> and so I would say the second thing would be just this idea that it's okay to place yourself under the authority of those who are older than you. It is so hip and sexy and popular for you to go your own way. Right? I'm going to be showing you some examples of films in which the, the, the central message is go your own way, defy gravity, right? And we're not, we're not stupid. We know what, what culture is trying to tell us. You don't need them. Just follow your own heart and do whatever you want. So embrace those who are older than you and who want to pour into you. Embrace your church, your church leaders. So I would say those things, that those spiritual focus in your um, at home, praying, reading scripture, and then allowing people who are wiser and mature to speak into you and keep you on the right track. Do you want to go to those clips? Yes, um, let's do that right now. So here's some cultural examples that are going to help us kind of see some of this idea come out. So here, this is a movie. I don't know if you guys ever heard of this. This is by um, City on the Hill Productions in Louisville, Kentucky, and I've actually met the the people who produced this. This is probably one of the best films I've seen made by um, Christians, and this is a very interesting story of a Nashville musician, and his name is Jed King, and his father's name is David King. So are you guys kind of picking up on, on the parallel here? So this is a retelling of the story of Solomon, and one of the reasons why I love this movie, not only is because the music is really good, but we see, we get to watch this character slowly, slowly, slowly put down his guard and let this woman, who is not his wife, take the place of his wife in his own heart. And it's funny because in the very beginning of the movie, she comes in real strong and he is like repulsed and and it's like, how dare you look at me? I am a married man. And, but it just, all it takes is time, right? So he starts distancing, distancing himself from his wife. And sure enough, 
we see them becoming closer. And the song that he wrote for his wife, he starts singing for this woman. And so it's a, it's a powerful retelling of the book of Solomon that makes us go, how did this man become a monster so quickly? And well, it's from a million compromises. And that reminds me, uh, something that I've heard, virtue is good morals on habit. Hmm. That we don't actually develop the good qualities of ourselves without a lot of repetition and habit. Same thing with our failures. You know, I don't wake up like an arrogant pig. I don't know what to do. But, <laughs> but, um, but it takes practice, you're saying. Hab- it's a continual habit of thinking, I'm great, I'm great, people love and it's about me. And it's like then the putting down the defenses mm-hmm. against sin and depravity. Yeah. So after David uh, sins, um, there comes a moment when he's confronted because he doesn't confess. He doesn't mm-hmm. recognize like, oh, I just committed adultery and murdered somebody. I should confess. He doesn't. He tries to hide this, right? Yeah, he tries to hide it. And go ahead. Uh, so uh, I'm wondering, like... The prophet comes to him and, and draws it out, but how he does it yeah. is it's just a great example of the seductive power that stories have in our lives. Absolutely. So Nathan, the prophet, is sent by God to David to confront him over his sin. But what's so interesting, and I thank you for bringing this up, it's so interesting that instead of Nathan just saying, you adultering, is that a word? adultering murderer repent he tells him a story which is really interesting and and the story goes like this there was a rich man and there was a poor man in a city the rich man had lots of sheep the poor man had only one and he loved it it was like a child to him and then when the rich man was having an event he took the poor man's sheep slaughtered it and gave it as a meal Right. And, and it's like, whoa. And so, yeah, so David David's hearing this going, I cannot believe this evil rich man. Yeah. yeah. So he's outraged. Remember, he was a shepherd. What? Yeah. And so he's got this moral outrage and he calls Nathan to bring this man to death. He deserves to die. Let him pay fourfold for what he's done. Exactly. Like right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So you probably flip the table, though, in the process. Yeah. And then Nathan turns to him and says, you are that man. And then he continues and he says, thus said the Lord of the Lord. And thus, here's the irony, ladies and gentlemen. If I came to you and said, you sinned, what should your punishment be? You'd be pretty easy on yourself. If I said, Dane sinned. Some of you be like, oh, he deserves to die. <laughs> Maybe not quite that. But, but see, here David condemns his own sentence, not even knowing he's talking about himself. Yeah. The guard was let down. So let's talk about this. What is happening with this story? Well, an- another metaphor that's connected with this idea of the Trojan horse is this idea of a dragon, right? So if you want to get past a dragon who can breathe fire and can chomp you in one bite, what do you got to do? You got to somehow find a way to cast a spell or sing him a song (laughs) so he goes to sleep so then you can walk past him, right? Well, C.S. Lewis talked about how stories have that power to put to sleep the dragon so you, your message, can 
walk right by. So in this in this illustration, who or what is the dragon? Okay, so that's that's a great question. So the dragon is David's defensiveness against his own sin, right? His refusal to take his uh, take responsibility for what he has done. So if Nathan were to, it looks like if Nathan were to have just come up to him and said, "You need to repent right now," it would have been like taking a fire mm. poker and just pushing it right in the eyes of the dragon. Right. And then the, the dragon would just been like, and then, mm-hmm. right. Take the poker and get you. Yeah. yeah exactly. But instead what he did was Nathan shifted and put to sleep the dragon by telling a story that David thought was not about him. And what's so powerful about stories is it, it draws you in, and then you have this um, suspension of what we call disbelief. Right. And which, so, which is, if you're not familiar with the term... It's this idea, like, when you watch a movie, you don't, you're not constantly going, well, that didn't take place, or that's not, a real, that's not a real world, or that's not a real... That's just an actor. No, once you're drawn into a movie, you suspend voluntarily choose to believe this is happening exactly all those all those things so what a story is it's like this joyful distraction which then lowers david's defenses so that the message thus says the lord you are that man was able to sneak in yeah it kind of came at a slant rather than a direct attack it was like a exactly sacking the quarterback's blind side yeah, that's a good way to say it. I'm not really. I don't really watch sports, so I, I, I don't really know what that it means. Was for Eli. Okay. Yeah. What's a sack? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but you know, Pastor Brandon, we see this happening all the time in our movies. Sometimes good messages are able to sneak past people and enter our hearts and sometimes sinister message messages are able to sneak past our defenses and implant themselves in our hearts and let me just give you a couple examples so here are what i think are three trojan stories in other words stories that get past our dragon yes okay Okay, i'm gonna skip this Okay, so here is the really well-known musical called Wicked. And essentially what um, this story is, it's a retelling of the Wicked Witch of the West, if you're familiar with Wizard of the Oz. Wizard of Oz. And this is... um, This is Alphaba. That's her name. And what they end up doing is they retell... Her story. She falls in love. She's misunderstood. She's smart. She needs to become her own self. And throughout the story, she ends up fighting against Glinda, the popular, beautiful witch from the South. And what ends up happening, I'm going to spoil it for you, is in the end, Alphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West, chooses, I'm tired of letting people tell me what is right and wrong. I'm tired of these 
rules and regulations. And so in this very metaphorical song, Defying Gravity, it's pretty powerful. I've seen it at the Pantages. She sings this song about, I'm done with all of this. I'm following my heart. And she goes off into the stage up into the sky so so to draw this out if if we started if i started to say to you dane right and wrong doesn't matter you would you would have some defenses and arguments against that exactly but instead we're drawn into this character we sympathize with what Mm -hmm. she's going through even empathize with her yes we relate and then when she comes to her conclusion we're like yeah you know what you have a right to come to that decision because of how you've been treated exactly because in our culture, we don't really judge people's stories. If I were to tell you my story, you just say, hey, that I can't judge what, what you have gone through and what you believe. That's just you. And that's exactly what they're trying to do here. They're, they're showing us how this witch, this evil witch, is actually just a twisted misunderstood smart beautiful person and there's a reason why she is that way and in the end she's not much different from the good witch there really is no difference hmm. and except their color but except their, right <laughs> right and that's another point except maybe what's on the outside but that is a powerful picture though of their equality even the yes right the so, wands and broom are at the same level it's, so, so in the end, they're asking us, what is good and evil? There's really no difference. There's really no difference. We've misunderstood what evil is. And, you know, you look at the movies that Netflix and Amazon Prime are producing now. It's all this, my friends. It's all about the anti-hero and them bringing us back to the origin story and showing us that it's a good person who was had bad things done to him or her who now is tortured, misunderstood, and then they become this evil monster. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. And who are we to judge? Hello? <laughs> Do you have a, another example? Yeah, last, um, last example that I'd like to bring up. Um, let's see. Uh, which one do I want to do? Um I want to do a good one. Okay. Um, a, a Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time is an interesting movie. We can talk more about that later. But um, I want to talk to you about an actually a good example. A good example of storytelling. Right? Listen up. Storytelling slipping a good message past a hostile audience. This is a a movie called A Quiet Place. And it's actually, listen to this, it's actually a horror film. Um, It's it's PG-13, but what's interesting is that it's not a typical horror film in many of the, the respects. And what I love about this film is that actually, in some respects, the dragon here... Or, or what's putting the dragon to sleep is the genre horror itself. So this movie has drawn people who would be very opposed to biblical traditional values. It's drawn them, and because, hey, this is a monster horror film, they'll go watch it, and what they don't realize is that actually a very biblical conservative message is being slipped in between the monsters. 
And so this is a, a fascinating movie. This is uh, John Krasinski, and behind him is his wife, Emily Blunt, in real life. And he wrote and directed this film. And this whole movie is about the importance of the family and how you can't get rid of the family unit. And... Um, uh, sorry, that distracted me. Um, let me read to you a quote from the movie real quick. Um, Emily Blunt, the wife, says to her, um, to her son, Your father will always protect you. He wants you to be able to take care of yourself and me. And John Krasinski later in the film says, who are we if we can't protect them, our children? So this is a post-apocalyptic setting. Everyone, all the humans basically have been destroyed. And the only way that they can survive is by not making any noise. And so what's so powerful is we see a family unit staying together that's the only way they can survive is if they stay together and the father and the mother train their children to be wise and prepare themselves for a hostile world. So in a world falling apart, it's the family that is holding the mini world together. Yes. And that's not a popular message these days that basically says the family unit is take it or leave it. You don't really need a mom and a dad and, and them loving on children. You don't really need that. But this is a very biblical message that has been snuck in through the dragon or through the spell of a horror movie that will bring lots of people in. And, and it, I found it very moving and powerful. and just reminds me of the power of stories and how it can be used for good and for evil. Indeed. So with that uh, realization that stories and movies are a great way to get past our sleeping dragon, what are some, what's one practical implication we can walk out with? Maybe how should we watch film or something maybe along that line? Absolutely. So real quick, the most practical thing I can tell you is be aware of what you are watching. And how do you do this? How do you, how do you be on guard against the messages that are trying to be given to us? Some that are good, some that are not good. The first thing is to really apply what your literature teacher, teachers are showing you. What? Yes, try and understand what the characters in the stories believe and what the villains believe. Oftentimes, what the villains believe is a big clue as to what the filmmakers are trying to say. Because oftentimes, the, the villain actually embodies biblical values. What? Yes, it's, it's true, and it happens all the time. Look at the ending. Look at the ending. Often the message is slipped in at the ending, whether it's just follow your heart, or don't give up, or go your own way, defy gravity, rebel against authority. And then finally, ask yourself, what is this film trying to say about the world? And then ask yourself, is that true or is that false according to what Scripture teaches? So it's, it's just some real practical steps for you not to kill the joy of watching movies and television, but to consume, enjoy these stories as 
actively engaged Christians. Dame Bundy, thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Part 3. Cars 3. How the movie relates to Elijah, Elisha, and us. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see the prophet Elijah at the top of his game. He has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he wins. He calls fire down from heaven upon his offering. The prophets of Baal couldn't do it for an entire day. Elijah does it, and according to the story, it seems to just be... The story uh, has no time pass. It's like Elijah prays, and it comes down. It was a definitive defeat. He's on the top of his game. But then, he's down. And of course, in the message, we call this the holy hangover. He's let down. He was at the top. He had so much excitement, and now he's depressed because he realizes... Nothing's really changed. Nobody has decided to be faithful to Yahweh because of what happened. And worse, Jezebel wants to kill him. So he's hiding in the wilderness. He thinks everything's over. And he thinks that his life has been a waste and that all of his efforts have gone to nothing. Now, we've all been there to one degree or another. The holy hangover, the letdown, the realization that we did our best, but it didn't do anything. That's when God visits Elijah. And God comes in the wind, the fire, the earthquake, but Elijah doesn't meet God in any of those big climatic events. Then it's in the still, small voice, the sound of a low whisper, or the sound of thin, quiet That's when the voice comes to him. Elijah, what are you doing here? He goes on his rant about how I'm the only one left. I failed. But then the voice sends him on a mission. A mission to set up the future. And so there's two things we need to learn in our hangovers. And I'm sort of reviewing from the message. Forgive me. One is God doesn't always work in the spectacular, right? We want fireworks. We want the bang, the boom. But fire doesn't always work. God sometimes works in much smaller, quieter ways. And the thing that we learn in our hangover is that there's a time when we're looking for victory, and it's what I accomplish that will be remembered. But God here speaks to Elijah and says, how many more victories do you need? And we know that we have the one victory in Christ. We just need to live out of that victory. As Romans 8 says, we are more than conquerors through Christ. So we're no longer playing the game for victories. We've already won. We're in the game to hear and know the voice and the presence of God. And when we embody what he's speaking That is the legacy we want to leave. That's when God can propel us into the future. And that's when we can get over our hangovers. Is when there's something to live forward for. Now, my victories 
people can talk about them, but I can't pass those on to the next generation or to somebody else. But the spiritual disciplines that I embody, the practices that I uh, make habits of to hear the voice of God and to sit in his presence, that I can pass over to the next generation or to somebody else. And that's what God needed Elijah to know. Yes, you lived a great life and you did some fabulous things as a prophet. and You had some great victories. But Elijah, it's time to think deeper than the mere surface victory. It's time to look at how you have cultivated practices in my presence, how you're embodying my voice for others to see and mimic that you can disciple others in. It's time that you possess something that you can pass over and pass down. And so he tells him, look, you're going to leave this place and you're going to go and anoint. You're going to go and appoint the next prophet who will be your successor. That's when Elijah snaps out of it. And so we see in 1 Kings 19 that he departed from there. This is 1919 and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who is plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. It was a symbol of come follow me and I will teach you to be like me. That's what the putting the cloak on him was a symbol of. And so Elisha chooses to follow Elijah from that day. And what we will see is that Elisha is twice as powerful as Elijah. Friends, Elijah got over worrying about if he won or not. Realized because he's one of God's children, he's already won regardless of the score. What he needed instead was to have this personal intimacy with God's presence, and he would pass that on to someone else. And Elisha caught it. And Elisha, because of Elijah, Elisha became an even more powerful prophet. That is a message for us in our holy hangovers. It doesn't mean just because you're in a holy hangover that you're going to be retired soon. The point is that we need to start living a life that's worthy of passing down to someone else. And we start doing that because we can do that for a long time. It doesn't mean you're at the end of your game. It actually, in my opinion, it means your game has only just begun. That's the exciting time is when we have lived experience. That's just your mere spring training. It's your warm up. All that experience was so that you can embody something that you can give to someone else and see them continue the spiritual disciplines and the practices and the embodiment of the voice and the word of God. That friends, that gives us so much purpose in life that gives us so much to look forward to. And it causes us to realize that we don't have to live in the dumps and the depression of our holy hangover. So all that to say, there's a movie made by Pixar and Disney called Cars 3. Atticus, my two-year-old son, has been watching it over and over, as kids do. And I began to see that this is the message of Cars 3. It is a story about how to pass something on to someone else, something that's worth continuing. It's about getting over being a winner or not. 
and winning by simply passing on what you've learned in your walk with God to someone else. So here's how the movie Cars 3 goes. Lightning McQueen, he is on top of his game, right? He is, the, the movie opens with showing him and his rivals having fun with each other. Sometimes the rivals win, sometimes Lightning McQueen wins. But Lightning McQueen, nonetheless, is at the top of his game, having the time of his life. He is revered and admired. He's a famous race car. But then enters Jackson Storm. He is this sleek, modern machine. He's black, or more properly, a very dark slate of gray. Near black, but not quite. And in one race, McQueen thinks that he's about to win when suddenly, out of nowhere, Jackson Storm zooms by him on the last turn at a speed lightning cannot comprehend, zooms by him and wins the race. And that's when Lightning McQueen's world changed. Race after race, Jackson Storm continues to dominate. Lightning can't win. His rivals retire because ownership decides you guys are too old. You're not winning anymore. And they're all going to these newer, sleeker, faster race cars. Lightning is determined to end when he says he's done. He will not let ownership decide that for him. But then there's the crash. He's in a race. Jackson effortlessly passes him. And Lightning McQueen sees him. And he is pushing his car as hard as he can to catch up. And he realizes to his horror that as hard as he tries, Jackson Storm and these other newer cars are going faster than him. And he can't catch up. And he's losing ground. And then... Pushing himself too hard, he blows a tire. His car swerves against the wall. It flips end over end, and he is a banged-up mess. His racing sponsor, Rusty's, sells to a more high-profile, younger, and more forward-thinking company. And the new ownership has this fancy facility built to train race cars. Lightning McQueen is brought back into the game, and they are determined to train him up. And so, they give him a fancy new decal, a new paint job. He looks fresher, more modern. His old paint job is covered up by this new decal. And then he's introduced to his trainer, Cruz Ramirez. She was once an aspiring racer, but was too cowardly to actually try the track, so she became a trainer instead. And she is put alongside uh, Lightning McQueen. He's, he's coming up to the final race of the season in which ownership has told him he has to win this race or they will retire him. But in some uh, desperate attempts to get better, Lightning and Cruz go off on an adventure to find an old-time racer named Smokey who raced alongside one of um, uh, Lightning's old mentors, Doc Hudson. And so they're out there, and they're going through some really creative techniques, not to make McQueen faster, but to make him smarter on the racetrack. 
So they're getting ready for this race. They're going to do one more practice lap on an old dirt track before they go to the race. And Cruz Ramirez is got, she's got Jackson Storm's name written on her so that it gives McQueen incentive to race. This is who he's racing. And they're going around and he thinks he's about to win, but then Cruz Ramirez passes him at the very end and she wins their practice race. And while Cruz Ramirez is incredibly excited, Lightning McQueen is distraught and he realizes, I don't know if I have it. But something interesting has happened in this time of training. Is that his decal, the new one put on by his new sponsors, trying to make him competitive with the newer race cars. This decal begins to peel off, revealing his old paint job, his old logo. And by the time training finishes, this entire new paint job comes completely off. And McQueen has his old colors back. Well, the day of the race comes. McQueen's doing all right, but there comes a moment in the story when he decides to pit. And according to race rules, he's able to switch uh, as long as it's the same number, racing number, number 95, a different driver can race under that number. And he has Cruz Ramirez, his trainer, come out and race for him. She's, of course, shocked. She, she doesn't know what to do. And McQueen then takes the position as crew chief, and he puts on the headset, and he talks Cruz through the race, and he encourages her, and he's telling her everything she was telling him, and he's helping her through the race, and he's using his past experience and his knowledge and his wisdom, and he's pouring all of that into a newer, younger car that can compete with this new school of racing, this new world of racing. And thanks to McQueen's help, Cruz Ramirez ends up beating Jackson Storm and winning the race. And it's that turning point in the story which I found interesting. Two things. First, the paint job. Here, sometimes we see Elijah and go, man, what, what's going on? And, and sometimes we can try to, we can try to win more, win more, win more. I gotta stay sharp, gotta stay sharp. I gotta still be active and admired and be doing my best and be doing all this stuff. But we're actually not being ourselves. Cause sometimes there's a season when it's now time for us to pass something on to someone else. Elijah becomes the Lightning McQueen who is training Cruz Ramirez. Elisha becomes his Cruz Ramirez. And that's when we can shed off this fake paint job, be our true selves as God made us to be, and start pouring in what he's given us into someone else. And we get to see them win. And you see, friends, this is what life is. There's a season where it's about victories, and it's about performing, and it's about all this stuff. But then there comes a moment when we realize that that actually wasn't the game. This was all pregame ceremony stuff. This was spring training. It was practice. The real game is when we stop being concerned about who wins and who loses, and we start pouring in our experience and our wisdom into someone else. And so Elijah has to get over this whole, how many people do I convert? Does Jezebel the queen care about Yahweh? He has to get all, he has to get over all of that and simply absorb the voice of Yahweh and pass on his spiritual disciplines, his practice of the presence of God to someone else. Again, it's not our victories that we can pass on to someone else. 
It's our experience, our knowledge of the holy, our footsteps in his presence, the voice that we've learned to hear through the spiritual disciplines. These are what we pass on to other people. So, may we all, while we're trying to run this race, look for the person that we are to pass it on to as they run their race. Let us not always be concerned with our performance, but also be concerned with the performance that we can pour into around us. And friends, sometimes that's the best way out of our depression, out of our deflated spirits, out of our hangovers, is to live forward by passing over and passing on that which God has taught us. Part four, a royal pain, the split of the kingdom of Israel. When Solomon dies, the kingdom comes to his son, Rehoboam, and asks him, Hey, please lighten the load that your father put on us. We're tired of paying taxes for all of his building expenses. Well, Rehoboam came back and answered, like the raving fool that he is. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Thus, Rehoboam thought he was something by proving how tough he was. Unfortunately, ten of the tribes of Israel said, Enough! We have nothing to do with the house of David anymore. And they succeed from the kingdom and establish their own kingdom. The ten tribes north of Israel become known as, and this is where it gets confusing, they become known as the kingdom of Israel. And often they will be nicknamed, mostly by the prophets, Ephraim. So as we read the Bible from this point on, don't get confused. The kingdom of Israel refers to the ten rebellious tribes who are not ruled by an heir of David. They are their own kingdom. The other two tribes near Jerusalem are Benjamin and Judah, and they remain faithful to the house of David. And in fact, a son of David will reign over them for the entirety of their kingdom until 586 BC, when the Babylonians finally take Jerusalem, and burn down the temple, that is when no longer a son of David reigns over them. But the line continues, and Jesus becomes the next son of David to rule over them, thus fulfilling God's promise that an heir of David will always rule over his people. It seems shocking, doesn't it, that ten of the tribes would walk away from that promise? But they do. The heart wants what it wants, and sometimes it simply wants to set up its own kingdom. So the kingdom of Israel, the north, Ephraim, we read in 1 Kings twelve nineteen. So Israel chose, I'm sorry, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So the north again is called the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim. The south, the ones ruled by the line of David, will become known as Judah. 
and they have Jerusalem and the temple of Yahweh. So we now at this point, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is united under Saul, David, and Solomon, but now it is split all the way to the end. 586, Judah goes off into exile to Babylon. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom is crushed by the Assyrians, and they don't get moved off anywhere. They get sprinkled around and intermarried with other nations so that they frankly just disappear. And what is left is a half-breed of other nations and Jews, and they become known in the New Testament as Samaritans. So a tale of two kingdoms. It does not go well for the north. It doesn't go very well for the south either, although they survive a bit longer. So what I did is I decided to have some fun. I looked up the kings because we're reading in kings and we won't on Sundays be able to teach about every single king, but it would be good to hear about some of them. The north kingdom will have 19 kings. The south kingdom will have 20 now, I had some fun with this and decided um, to look, to keep score of how many good kings and how many bad kings each had. And if we were to count each good king as a win and each bad king as a loss, then we would give each kingdom a record and then we would calculate their winning percentage. It was fun. And you may be surprised by the results. Now, I'm going to read to you um, from Haley's Bible Handbook. This is where this information is coming from. So if you have it, you can go look at it yourself. Haley's Bible Handbook describes it like this. We'll start with the southern kingdom of Judah. So the southern kingdom, again, had 20 kings. Here's how they score. Rehoboam, 17 years, bad mostly. Abijah, three years, bad mostly. Asa, 41 years, good. Jehoshaphat, 25 years, good. Jehoram, eight years, bad. Ahaziah, one year, bad. Athaliah, six years, devilish. Joash, 40 years, good mostly. Amaziah, 29 years, good mostly. Uzziah, 52 years, good. Jotham, 16 years, good. Ahaz, 16 years, wicked. Hezekiah, 29 years, the best. Manasseh, 55 years, the worst. <laughs> 55 years of the worst. And we have a hard time. We have four years of a president we don't like. Can you imagine 55 years? Woo! Amnon, or Ammon, two years, the worst. Josiah, 31 years, the best. Well, that's the good side of having a long king, huh? Jehoaz, Jehoahaz, three months, bad. Jehoiakim, 11 years, wicked. Jehoiachin, three months, bad. Zedekiah, 11 years, bad. And that's when the Judah, the kingdom of Judah ended in exile. So 20 kings, we tally up the goods and the bads, and what we come up with is Eight goods and 12 bads, which gives you a winning percentage of 400. 
or point four hundred, which is forty percent. Eh, they're below fifty fifty. They were mostly bad. And this is the kingdom that had the temple of Yahweh. They were the so-called faithful kingdom. Well, the northern kingdom, Israel? Oh, it's bad. Do you want to know how bad? Listen to this record. Jeroboam, 22 years, bad. Nadab, 2 years, bad. Baasha, 24 years, bad. Elah, 2 years, bad. Zimri, 7 days, bad. Omri, 12 years, extra bad. Ahab, 22 years, the worst. Ahaziah, 2 years, bad. Jerem, 12 years, bad mostly. Jehu, 28 years, bad mostly. Jehoahaz, 17 years, bad. Joash, 16 years, bad. Jeroboam II, 41 years, bad. Zechariah, 6 months, bad. Shalom, 1 month, bad. Menahem, 10 years, bad. Pekahiah, 2 years, bad. Pekah, 20 years, bad. Hosea, 9 years, bad. For a grand total of 0 goods and 19 bads, that is a 0% winning percentage. There you have it. It was really bad to rebel against God's covenant and develop your own kingdom. Because here's the bottom line. We cannot rule in life without God's help. Independent and on our own, we will always seek the path of death. Because we do not know how to have life without God's provision. And this is the lesson that we learn in the Garden of Eden. When God gave Adam and Eve the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was a test. It was a decision, one that we're faced with, one that the kingdoms of Judah and Israel were faced with. Will we depend upon God and seek to reign in life through his power, through his way, the tree of life? Or will we break from him Seek autonomy, self-law, self-rule, independence, and do what we want to do, calling good what we want to call good and bad what we want to call bad. If we do that, we choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as Adam and Eve chose that tree and lost the land, so Israel and Judah chose that tree and lost the land. Adam, Eve, Israel, Judah, all sent into exile. You and I will also have a lot of loss in life if we choose to insist on our way. The tree of life is available today through Jesus Christ. And the way we eat of it is the way Jesus gave us his flesh and his blood and said, eat of me and you'll have eternal life. It is the practice of faithful trust, constant dependence, reliance on his grace, following his way of life. That is how we eat from the tree of life today. So, what would your record be if we lined up the years of your life or decision after decision? If we looked at a map or chronology of your life How many goods and how many bads or how many 
trusting in God and how many trusting in self would we have? What would your so-called winning percentage look like? It would be interesting. But here's the beauty of the gospel is we can do this for fun. But God looks at it and says, yeah, 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 whatever your record was, that was spring training. Now is the real thing. Welcome to my kingdom. You see, his grace covers all our mistakes. And we recognize that in Christ, we have a perfect record. That's the king we've been longing for. While we thought it was I who needed to be king, we've been longing for Christ, the true son of David, the true king that the north kingdom and the south kingdom were yearning for. He has come. Let us follow him. Let us crown him Lord of our lives. And let us be loyal to the kingdom, not of Israel, not of Judah, not of me, but the kingdom of God. Part 5. The Literary Structure of the Book of Kings. And now for those who want the deeper dive, I have another chiastic structure for you for the entire book of Kings, which includes for us first and second Kings. Now remember, a chiastic structure is one in which you have side A, a middle, and side B. And so side A moves one way, gets to the middle, and then it moves out in a mirrored fashion. So um, the book of Kings has this kind of structure. And I'd like to point this out to those that like this kind of deeper stuff because it shows you where we are presently in our study of Kings. And just throw all spoilers out, it's the Omri dynasty. That's the center of First and Second Kings. The entire book slows down when Omri takes the throne and then has his son Ahab, and then, of course, Ahab's sons. This house, this dynasty, is the center of Kings, and it is the most wicked and it is at this time that we also see the prophets Elijah and Elisha come into play. And there's in, this intentional conflict between the Omri dynasty and the prophets of Yahweh. It's the word of the king versus the word of the prophet. And we see over and over a power struggle. And who has the upper hand? The prophets. Because they are the constant reminder that Yahweh is the true king. That the humans on the thrones wearing the crowns are merely his servants. That's what the prophets become, are these annoying reminders to those who want to be their own king. So here's how the structure, the outline of kings works. Point A we have one united kingdom under Solomon. It's First Kings chapters 1 through 11. Then in First Kings chapter 12, we have point B. The northern kingdom succeeds. Point C, we have chapters 13 through 16, a chronology of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then we hit the center at First Kings chapter 17, the Omri dynasty and the prophets the showdowns. 
This takes us all the way from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 10. Now we walk out, right? We walk backward. We had an ABC going into the Amrad dynasty versus the prophets. Now we'll have a CBA going out. So, point C. In 2 Kings 11 through 16, we'll once again have another chronology of the kings of Israel and Judah. Point B. In 2 Kings 17, we come back to the northern kingdom. The north falls to the Assyrians. And then point A. In 2 Kings 18 to 25, Judah stands alone. So A before was one united kingdom under Solomon. We now have one kingdom alone, Judah. They stand alone, and then they, at the very end of the book, they fall as well. So with our last message um, called The Holy Hangover about Ahab and Elijah, we have entered the center and heart of this book and the point it wants to make. It's the word of Yahweh above the sword of the king. And so next week, as we look at um, Elisha and the remaining kings of the Omri dynasty, uh, we're going to see this continue to be played out. And then the rest of our studies in the book will be going back through C, B, and A till finally um, the north and the south both fall. Israel and Judah fall. And that will end. That will end the narrative history of Israel as ordered in the Jewish order of the Old Testament, also known as the Tanakh. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. One streamless narrative from the beginning of the creation of the world to the beginning of Israel to the fall of Israel. Then we go to Jeremiah and we start the prophet's who become commentators on the history of Israel, where they failed, and then hopefully looking to the future for how God will restore their fall. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thank you for listening.